So this is a subject I haven't really talked about very much in the past, but I I actually know a good bit about North Korea because naturally North Korea runs a lot like a cult does, interestingly enough, and I've never covered it on my main channel. I really should um, because it, it's such an extreme place to live. But let's take a look at this article. It's by the BBC, which is a... Uh, UK-based news organization, and see what, see what they have to say about North Korea. The title is North Korea, Everything You Need to Know About the Country. For decades, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, more commonly known as North Korea, has been one of the world's most secretive countries. Its government doesn't like people from outside the country going there and finding out what's going on. It shares a border with a country called South Korea, and the two countries have not gone on with each other for a long time. It's kind of a British thing to say. A North Korean leader had not stepped foot in South Korea for 65 years, and the leaders of the countries had not met for 10 years. From my understanding, there's this, um, like on the border of North Korea, there's this set of buildings, uh, the border between North Korea and South Korea. And anytime they're going to meet, it's like a, a DMZ, like a demilitarized zone kind of, where uh, the militaries of each country are not allowed to be there without notice, pretty much, of either side. And so when they meet, when South Korea meets with North Korea, they go to these buildings and they sit down at the tables and talk things out there with militaries from each party or militaries from each country there it's like really really serious and i could be wrong but i think that's where north korea does most of their meetings um not just with south korea but with whoever with the outside world china is technically i think north korea's only ally on paper officially so they're allowed to get things from china shipped into north korea like cell phones and things like that back to the article it says uh a North Korean leader had not stepped foot in South Korea for 65 years, and the leaders of the countries had not met for 10 years. But that changed in April 2018, when North Korean leader Kim Jong-un met with the president of South Korea, Moon Jae-in. Interesting. Inter interesting names. I like the names, actually. Moon Jae-in. That's a cool name. At the border between the two countries. The meeting was a significant moment in modern history. Uh, by the way, Korean names, I believe, are backwards. So Kim Jong-un is from the Kim family. Like, I'm from the Morgan family. I'm Owen Morgan, my last name being Morgan. So Kim Jong-un is from the Kim family. It's like Kim is their last name, basically. In order to better understand the relationship between the two countries, we need to take a look back over the last few decades at the history of this secretive country. When was North Korea created? North Korea was formally created on September 9th, 1948, following the end of World War II, along with another country called South Korea. My grandfather actually fought in the Korean War, like my mom's dad fought in the Korean War. It was like a really ugly thing. The political differences between the two rival states led to the outbreak of a horrific war in 1950, which lasted three years. Since then, North Korea and South Korea have been enemies. Since 1948, North Korea has been ruled by three men from the same family. Kim Il-sung was the country's first supreme leader, who was in charge until his death in 1994. 
Control passed next to his son, Kim Jong-il, who held power for 17 years. Wow, that's interesting. Kim Il-sung was actually, um, he is officially still the leader of North Korea, even though he's dead. I, I think Christopher Hitchens jokes around and says that it's the first ever necrocracy, the first country that's run by a dead guy, pretty much. Kim Il-sung actually ordered a pillow made of the softest down in existence. And down, for those who may not know, they're the feathers underneath on a bird. They're like the feathers closest to the bird's body, basically. And it took him 500 sparrows, from my understanding, to get this pillow. They killed 500 sparrows to get the softest down in existence. It's pretty sad. <laughs> Anyway, in 2011, North Korea announced Kim Jong-il's son, Kim Jong-un, as its new leader. Around one million people gathered in the capital city, Pyongyang, to hear the announcement. What is life like in North Korea? North Korea is home to more than 25 million people who live under a form of communist rule, which strictly controls all areas of daily life. It's interesting because the title, the, like the name of the country is DPRK which is Democratic People's Republic of Korea. So on, pa on paper, actually, it's a democratic republic, exactly the same as the United States is. We are, we're not a democracy. We're a democratic republic. When the founding fathers were setting up the government, uh, they basically did it in such a way that the minority would be protected from the majority. That's the goal of the Electoral College and the system of senators and house members that we have set up it's protection for minorities against majorities and that's why it's not a pure democracy because they didn't want majority rules here they wanted um, a fair system that would balance itself out basically and in a democracy say hypothetically Christianity, just like extremist evangelical Christianity gets a foothold here, uh, they wanted to make sure that people that weren't a part of that group were protected from extremist Christians. That, that, that's the goal behind the whole thing. Now, that's actually really, really smart. That's a really good, smart way to do it. But naturally, as with every system, there are flaws in the system that I would like to see worked out. Uh, I, I, I want to see continued protections for minorities against the majority, for sure. It's, a, it's an amazing system, but it's not perfect. No system is perfect. So I don't feel like we should be above changing things in the U.S. to be better, basically. I'm not like an elitist. I don't think the U.S. has the perfect system. I think it's absurd to claim that it does. But it's a good system, generally. I think it, you know, the fact that the system that the U.S. has right now, like the legal system and everything that the U.S. has, the fact that it's lasted as long as it has is a testament to just how intelligent those guys were when they set it up. Like, I, I could not have set it up. Like, I could not have set up a government as, as well as they did. For the U.S. Like, that is so seriously impressive. Anyway, let's take another look at the article here. North Korea is home to more than 25 million people who live under a form of communist rule which strictly controls all areas of daily life. People have to ask permission to travel around 
and it's difficult for visitors to enter the country. All TVs and radios are tuned to state channels, and people caught listening to foreign broadcasts face harsh punishments. It's not just that TVs and radios are tuned to state channels. It's that there is a state-run media organization that basically talks about the leader 24-7 in a very Kafkaesque, brainwashy type of style. And you can't change it. Like, that's it. That's what you're watching. Every bit of news you get comes from Kim Jong-un. That's pretty much all you have. Like, that's all you can consume is that. It's really, really Orwellian. Like, it is the definition of Orwellian, seriously. It's scary. These controls mean that most North Koreans may have little or no idea of world events or how their country is thought of by the, by the outside world. The U.S., has in the past sent aid like food rations to North Korea because North Koreans are like starving to death. There, there's just no food there. And they're like, I forget, maybe five inches shorter than their South Korean brethren because of malnutrition. So the U.S. has sent relief, has sent food aid to North Korea before, but on the packages that they sent were stamped a gift from the United States of America or something like that, right? Because they wanted the people to know who was giving them this food. Try to get some kind of an out, uh, a message from the outside in. So naturally, you'd think to yourself, well, North Korea is just not going to give the food to them, to, to the people, right? Or something. Or they're going to scratch it out or repackage it or something. Now, first of all, all of the food, almost all of the food, went to the military. So they got first crack at the food. Then it got passed down to the people. And then it hit black markets. Because it's not a capitalist country. It's a... Uh, I think it's actually a socialist country. I don't think it's fully communist. I'm not really sure. Anyway, so it hit black markets... And interestingly enough, the leadership, like Kim Jong-un, he didn't want people to remove a gift from the U.S. from the packaging. He wanted it to stay there. And on all of the state media channels, like through the TV and the radio, he was announcing, look at what the U.S. is doing because they're so afraid of us. They're so afraid of how powerful we are. They're giving tribute. They're giving gifts so that we won't attack them, so that we won't hurt them, all this other stuff. It's just, it's all part of the propaganda. They feed this information to these people, and there's no counter-narrative at all. It is only what the state has to tell you, and that's it. It's extremely heartbreaking. And extremely fascinating at the same time to see how people react to this stuff. They say two out of three people in North Korea are completely loyal to the government and will rat you out. And there, there are some real horror stories from North Korea. If you're doing something that the state doesn't approve of or something, and the state finds out that you're doing that, they will kill you and your entire family and anybody that you know, anybody you're close to, they will kill all of you. If you are the one to tell on somebody, they'll do the exact same thing. Kill that person and, and their entire family and everybody that they know, except for you. 
It's basically a way of preventing anybody from breaking any kind of rules of any sort. And the moment that you find out somebody is breaking a rule, it's incentive for you to tell on them so that you don't die for knowing it or for knowing them. It's an extremely oppressive situation. Let's continue on with the article. Most North Koreans are extremely poor with things like fridges, washing machines, and even bicycles hard to come by. Many people rely on aid agencies such as the United Nations to provide food because there's not enough to eat in the country. However, North Koreans who demand more from their government demand a change in leadership or those that just try to escape are brutally punished and sometimes killed. An Amnesty International report estimated that hundreds of thousands of people have been put in prison and labor camps because they've disagreed with the government. Crazy, man. It, it, it's just a completely different world, and it's so insulated from everything else. It's scary. North Koreans seem to cheer and praise their leader at big public events, but it's difficult to know the reasons for this because it's not possible to speak freely to people living there. The North Korean government says it's because Kim Jong-un is very popular with his people. From an early age, North Koreans are taught that their leaders are like all-powerful gods. But others argue that people could be cheering Kim because they're worried that they would get in serious trouble if they didn't. There are a lot of concerns when it comes to North Korea. There's a lot of scary stuff related to North Korea. Like, they're basically building up this, this army, building up their nuclear capabilities to scary degrees and insulating themselves more and more from the world. I actually followed North Korea really, really closely a few years ago and everything that was going on with it. And I remember they actually, at one point, they captured a film director and forced him to make movies for the leader. I don't remember if it was Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un. Anyways, they forced him to make movies for them until he finally escaped. Usually the route that they have to take, the South Korean border is just way too guarded. Just way too guarded. You have absolutely zero hope of getting out of there. Actually, you know, I may, I may include clips at the end of this of people trying to escape North Korea. It's really, really fascinating. Like, they're chased down by guards and stuff, and some of them just squeak by, just barely get through the fence and take off. But their only route out of North Korea, pretty much, is um, through China. Because the Chinese border is a lot less heavily guarded than the South Korean border, basically. Although it is still heavily guarded, the Chinese one is. It, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So you guys should definitely read more about this because it's, it's really scary stuff. And it's really disheartening. But I feel like I have a, a moral duty to know what's going on with these people. So anyway, there's this website called faithwire.com. Just discovered it. I, I assume it's complete BS because it, it seems like a super Christian website. But the title of this article is There Has to Be Something Outside Us. Prominent agnostic podcaster admits openness to Jesus. Dave Rubin is a theist. Come to find out, Dave Rubin believes in God. I don't know if you guys know Dave Rubin. Let me give you a little bit of background on Rubin. Years and years ago, like before I started my YouTube channel, maybe a year or two before, there were a lot of atheist YouTubers around at that time. Armored Skeptic, 
Um, Logic, too, is still around in the atheist sphere. Just a whole bunch. There were a whole bunch of uh, atheist YouTubers at the time. And they were talking about Kent Hovind and, and a bunch of other subjects like that, right? Atheistic subjects. Well, over time, they started to move in a more anti-SJW direction. Uh, Thunderfoot's another good example. I followed them there. I followed them the whole way. I was like, yeah, you know, SJWs, they're evil and all that other stuff. Like, I was an anti-SJW for a while. After some time, I started to realize that they were very much going over the top. They were full of shit. Now, I've said this before, but SJWs have their problems too. And that's why I, I don't call myself an SJW. I call myself an advocate for social justice, not a social justice warrior. That means I believe in women's rights. I believe in trans rights. I believe in gay rights. The whole nine yards. Inclusivity all the way. But I don't believe in calling people out by name, shaming people, cancel culture, other things like that, right? So I kind of stopped watching Sargon, stopped watching Armored Skeptic and, and all of the others who were anti-SJWs, uh, Thunderfoot and things like that. But around that time, Dave Rubin was part of the Young Turks network. And that they're a liberal network. They're like a liberal YouTube channel, YouTube network. He was a liberal, Dave Rubin was. And added some interesting insight to the subjects. Well, eventually, he ended up leaving the Young Turks to create the Rubin Report, his own show. And that thing just took off. I think on his first episode, he had Sam Harris on. And uh, it, it, it got really big, really fast. I think he's in the millions of subscribers now or something like that. He had this complete political shift from left-wing to right-wing. Like, now he is right-wing. I, I, I'm comfortable saying that. He says he's a classical liberal or a libertarian, I think. But he's been on, like, PragerU videos, which I haven't debunked one of those in a while. I would like to sometime soon. Maybe count that as coming in the pipeline. But they are like an extremist right-wing Christian organization. And the fact that he's hitching his wagon to PragerU at the very least, tells me that he's not, like, a, a full liberal anymore. Like, that that's... It's just... It's really bizarre to me. Like, just look at the title of this. Dave Rubin says that he's a theist now. So he, he has called himself an atheist in the past. Now, we're going to get to the article in a second. But at one point in time, he called himself atheist. And now he's a theist. So he went from liberal to right-wing, and now he's gone from atheist to theist. It's like one of those shifts in a person's lifetime is bizarre in itself. But two of those shifts, like basically back-to-back, -back, like what happened in this dude's life that brought him to these conclusions? I don't know. It's like mind-blowing to me. It's like a Christian converting from like being a pastor, to being a Muslim religious leader. It happens, but it is fucking bizarre when it does. It is strange. 
It's like when an adult comes out and tells you that they believe that Santa Claus is literally real. This is a one-way street for me. I can't speak for any other atheists, but I have seen Christianity and the things that Christianity does. And it's just like, I, I cannot take it seriously. I can't. I would love to. I mean, I had, I released a video earlier called My Grandfather Has Lung Cancer. You guys probably saw that video. I would love to believe that this isn't the end of the line. I just can't. I mean, think about what would happen if tomorrow I came out and said, I'm a Christian. I would be, I would be rich. I'd be paraded around by Kent Hovind and Ken Ham and Ray Comfort and all of those guys. I mean, they'd buy me a mansion. So there's plenty of incentive there for me to be a theist. But I can't because I don't believe it. It's not a choice. It's a conclusion that I've made. I can't choose to believe something different. It's just very strange to me when people come out and say that they became a theist after being a prominent atheist in the community. Like, look at what happened with... Uh, God, earlier I said I don't do public call-outs. I'm, I'm, don't consider this a call-out. I'm just... I mean, this guy came out and said it on his channel anyways, so... Computing Forever, the YouTube channel Computing Forever. He was like a prominent atheist in the community. He talked about, uh, you know, atheistic and religious arguments in debates and things like that. And now he's a Christian, like a full-blown Christian. I tr truly don't understand how that happens. Like, I'm trying so hard to wrap my head around this, and I just cannot. So, anyway... Let's, let's read the article. Like I said, this is from like a religious website, so let's see what they have to say. One of the most successful podcasters and YouTube hosts today has admitted that he feels an affinity with the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, I, I, I actually listened to it. I don't remember him mentioning Jesus specifically. I feel like he just said he was a theist, that he believed in God, or said that there was, could be something there, like weak theism. I didn't think that he went as strong as saying Christianity, because he grew up Jewish. Why would he talk about Jesus? Anyway, whatever. Let's see. What, let's continue on. Dave Rubin, who hosts The Rubin Report, was discussing matters of faith with Christian apologist Professor John Lennox as part of the Big Conversation Debate series organized by Premier Christian Radio. Okay, uh, John Lennox, I actually know who that is. He's been in a lot of Christian debates. He's, uh, I think, a PhD mathematician or something. Uh, a bigger guy. That's him right there. If you're watching the podcast on YouTube, you'll get to see a picture of him. Seems like an okay, nice enough guy, but yeah, he's super, super Christian. And he debates atheists a lot. Held before a 1,000-strong audience at Cavalry Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, the pair discussed the open question, is God dead? Kind of a weird question, but okay. Reuben was raised in a culturally Jewish home and in the past had described himself as an atheist, but later hedged on that description and seemed to indicate agnostic was more befitting. Now, however, he has opened up about the profound impact that Christians have had on his life and how they have caused him to explore the faith. I would say, as I've sat down with believers, this is a quote by Reuben, 
I would say, as I've sat down with believers and non-believers alike, I've genuinely found the believers not only more welcoming, but more open, actually happier, less dependent on things outside of themselves, more self-reliant, he said during the discussion. On Jesus himself, Reuben said he has no problem with him, but actually rather likes the guy. Likes the guy, okay. I like the message of Jesus. I love these ideas, he added. I think that if my life becomes a continuing conversation about these things, I can... I can incorporate the best parts of that to be a better person. Spending a lot of time with renowned Canadian academic Jordan Peterson this year, Rubin said he profoundly impacted by the deep biblical influences that underpinned Peterson's philosophy and worldview. I think they left a word out there. Talking about his biblical lectures and his perspective on life, that there has to be a bedrock of something that's real and true outside of us. It moved me, Rubin explained. I'm secular in my life, but I've found in the last year that there has to be something outside of us. The rest of this makes no sense. Like I was saying before, it sounds like he moved from a weak atheist position, like not really super confident in that position, to a weak theist position. Like, yeah, maybe there there must be something outside of us, that kind of thing. So it's a little bit less kind of like absurd, for lack of a better term, to me, that he moved over on this issue because it he really didn't move that much but when i see somebody like computing forever go full-blown christian it blows my mind when i see a muslim convert to christianity it blows my mind they're like so different from each other both of those two ideas both of those two ideologies christianity and islam are opposed to each other they they don't like each other they don't get along and they're both they can both be very extreme i can see the logical progression from i'm being attacked by this group of people oh these people literally want to shut down free speech or something like that and and i can see the logical progression to um slightly more right-wing ideas and then getting even more and more right-wing until you're a full-blown anti-SJW and then you're getting into the economics of the right-wing and things like that. Like, I can see that logical progression because I went through that myself. Now I recognize that it's not logically sound, but I just cannot wrap my head around the logical progression from being a prominent atheist to being a Christian. Just like the Flat Earth Movement, like, I can't wrap my head around how that works. How do people come to those conclusions? It's just really strange. Um, first one coming from a cringy trap. If you could ask God th- uh, five questions, what would they be? Should I? Okay. You know what? I'm drinking from my we all die and there is no God get over it mug. Maybe I should harness that part of me. Like I said, I don't make any kind of extreme claims or anything. This mug is just edgy. That's why I I own it. But what five questions? I guess I could ask five edgy questions. I'll give you a couple of edgy questions. Why do you allow people to die and suffer instead of saving their lives? Okay, so that's a standard question that a lot of atheists and even Christians ask. Why, Why is there suffering? But here's an even better question. Here's my number one question I would ask God if I, if I met God. Why didn't you quarantine Adam and Eve and give Adam a vasectomy and just like let them live the rest of their 80 years 
and or however many and just not let them reproduce and create a new breeding pair. Why didn't you do that? It, it seems like it, it's your fault that all of these billions and billions of people have died throughout history when you could have just quarantined them and created a new breeding pair. I'm blaming that one on God. Uh, this one coming from Voice 2 did everything wrong. Thoughts on Anarchy Telltale? Uh, wait, was that name Voice 2 did everything wrong? Voice 2 did everything wrong. Okay, that's correct. Thank you. Yes, I like that <laughs> name. That's a good name. Uh, one, one more time, what was the question? I was only paying attention to the Voice 2 thing. <laughs> um what are your thoughts on anarchy what are my thoughts on anarchy okay that's an interesting question actually because a lot of people view anarchy as just zero government zero kind of structure societal structure of any sort when actually it's not like that uh anarchy in an okay so in any social system there is going to be some kind of social order imposed just look at the drug war as an example. They do this thing called the decapitation strategy where they try to cut off the head. They try to cut off the supply, take out the leader, and they hope that the, the rest of the organization or the body surrounding it or whatever is going to fall away. But uh, they, they've tried that like a billion times throughout history, and it just does not work that way. Uh, with the drug war, with Iraq, it didn't work that way. You know what happened when we took out uh, Saddam Hussein? There was a power vacuum, and the next guy in line took authority. And if we take out like all the next guys in line, somebody else is going to take power. Guess who it was in that case? It was ISIS. ISIS took power there because we took out Saddam Hussein. He was keeping ISIS out. So... The, the whole decapitation strategy does not work. It didn't work in Iraq. doesn't work in the drug war either. Getting back to the whole anarchy thing, there will be societal structure, whether it's run by a government or not. In the case of anarchy, people who draw up plans for anarchist systems usually plan for private companies to run things and make the laws. A purely capitalist style system where you get to pick uh which fire department you want to put out your house uh if it's on fire and you have to pay them a certain amount of money every month to make sure basically like fire insurance that kind of thing that's the type of system that an anarchist plans for basically from my understanding most anarchists view it that way there won't be, it's not like no societal structure. It's like no government. It, there is still societal structure. So anyway, I think it sounds like a nice idea on paper, but just like communism, once it leaves the paper and goes to practice, it falls to pieces. And, and you can honestly see a lot of the major flaws in it without even trying to put it into practice. So yeah, it, it would never work. An anarchist system wouldn't work. If it did, it would have to be a really small society that, that worked together and trusted each other. Uh, this one's from Nirvana. Do you think it's unethical to deprogram elderly JWs? Oh, man, that's a good question. Like, I feel like, I, I don't remember if I talked about this on my video from uh, Sunday. 
the video was about the fact that my grandfather has lung cancer and I was talking to his wife, Sue, on the phone and she was telling me, I, I was like, how are you handling this? Like, what are your thoughts on this? What's going through your head? What are you thinking about it? And she basically said she's just leaning on the Lord. What's my response there? What do I say? Do I say, we all die and there is no God, get over it? Or do I just leave it alone? Do I let her believe it? That's what I do. And that's what I did. I just let her, I let her believe it. I leave it alone. I think it's preferable to understand true things and believe true things and know true things. In cases of tragedy, in, in situations where you may be near the end of your life or whatever, I'm not going to insert myself into that situation and burst people's bubbles. I'm going to leave it alone because it, 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 it could be genuinely psychologically damaging to them to come to that realization at that moment. Like, I came to the realization that there is no God, or I, I came to realize that Christianity is false at the very, very bare minimum when I was like 21 or 22, somewhere in there. So I had the time that it takes to process that and accept the fact that one day I'm not going to be here. One day I am going to die. One day we are all going to die, bottom line. And, and it's very possible that there is nothing on the other side waiting for me. Like I said, this is not my claim. We all die and there is no God. Get over it. That's not my claim. I'm not making a claim. I don't know. It's possible. Maybe there is something. Show me the evidence. And, and I will look at it with an honest, open mind and decide. So far, I've been in the atheist debate scene for years and years, and I haven't seen a shred of evidence that was compelling in any way, honestly. Maybe a couple that kind of pulled me a little bit in one direction or the other, but honestly, it's just... It, it all seems like nonsense to me. So coming to realize that it's possible that there is no God is a really hard thing to deal with. It's hard to be an atheist sometimes. And putting somebody through that at the end of their life is inadvisable. Now, as far as Jehovah's Witnesses go, um, you don't have to be an atheist to be an ex-Jehovah's Witness. I don't see anything wrong with trying to show people the truth about things. Like, obviously, Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. I think that that's self-evident. Like, they've made so many claims throughout history that are just complete BS, that have fallen flat every single time. It just seems obvious to me, honestly. Uh, and and I, I feel like you can still believe in God as an ex-Jehovah's Witness, so... If you're wondering if you should try to move somebody away from Jehovah's Witnesses when they're elderly, my answer would be you're going to have to figure that out for yourself because I'm not in that situation. You are. You know best what, what choice to make here. But I'm not opposed to helping anybody of any age out of the religion. Just try to address the religious claims like the Jehovah's Witnesses claims. Focus on that and go from there. And just see, 
where it, where it goes. Okay, I got a super chat from Icy Wolf. What are your thoughts on people who are spiritual? Uh, I feel like spiritual is like an amorphous, ill-defined term. So I'm honestly not even really sure what to... Like, I, I don't even know what to say about it when somebody tells me they're spiritual. I don't know how to take it or what it means or what they even mean. I don't think they even know what they mean when they say spiritual. Does that mean they believe in God a little bit or... Does that mean they believe in magic or what does it mean? I don't know. I don't know what it means. Anyway, I don't know. Whatever. I mean, if somebody tells me they're spiritual, that's okay with me. You can be spiritual if you want, but I feel like you should probably define yourself a little bit more clearly than that because that's honestly a very confusing term to a lot of people. So this article is called Right-Wing Activist Denounces Trans-Inclusive Violence Against Women Act. And actually, interestingly enough, this one hits home with me. So it's on the Friendly Atheist blog by Beth Stoneburner. But Hemant, it's Hemant Mehta's blog, actually. Um, and, I, and I just interviewed Hemant Mehta just recently. So that'll be on my main channel. may already be there uh, by the time you get to see this. So let's give this article a read and see what it has to say. A right-wing activist who claims to love women, quote-unquote, don't they all, <laughs> said yesterday that he refuses to support the Violence Against Women Act. But that's to be expected from Ed Martin, who runs the Phyllis Shafley Eagles, a group modeled after the woman who arguably blocked the Equal Rights Amendment. His reasoning? The VAWA includes transgender women, and that would somehow be bad news for cis women. It's a, uh, I'm sorry, it's a comment that HUD Secretary Ben Carson made recently and which Martin wanted to defend. This is a quote from Martin, apparently. That is the case for Dr. Ben Carson, who serves as our Secretary for Housing and Urban Development, Martin said. He told HUD staff that directors of women's shelters were concerned about big hairy men claiming to be transgender women in order to gain admission. Obviously, that's a very real problem. As you can tell, my eyes are getting more and more squinty as this goes on. The women who go to battered women's shelters are going there because they and their children have been traumatized, likely by an abusive relationship with a man, Martin continued. The last thing we need to do is force them to share bedrooms and shower facilities with strange and confused men. That old trope again, the trans women are just male predators in disguise trope, is about as realistic as someone putting a razor in an apple for Halloween. That's so true. That has literally never happened. Actually, uh, there was this... I, apparently, somebody actually did put needles in strawberries, like in South America at one point, and it, got, it seriously injured some people, and they went to prison for like a long time over that. Like It was international news when that happened. It is not happening for Halloween every year. It's ridiculous that people are claiming that. Anyway, uh, it just doesn't happen, but some people act like it's commonplace because they choose to remain ignorant. 100% agree. You know what happens a lot more frequently than that? Trans women assaulted simply for being trans women. But facts don't hold much appeal to men like Martin. Lies have more shock value and make for better headlines. Plus, his base eats it up without any attempt at critical thought. Well said. Now, you may be asking yourself... Why does this hit home with me? Why do I care? How does this relate to me in any way? I'm not a woman. I'm not trans. Um, it's because my mom went to a lot of battered women's shelters when I was little. Actually, um, 
I don't think I ever went to one with her, maybe once, but my brothers and sister did a lot, multiple times. And my mom actually knew men at that shelter. She apparently was friends with some of the men that were battered. They don't have a battered men's shelter. Now, the reason for that may be because men are not battered as much. That's, I'm sure that's true. They're not abused as much as women are. Uh, also, it's underreported with men because it, it makes them feel weak and emasculated and things like that. I'm 100% sure that it happens more often than is reported. I'm sure there is underreporting for men being abused. 100% sure of that. But women are abused more than men are. So a battered women's shelter does make sense. But if a man needs to come there because he's being abused, even if it's in a gay relationship, even if he's being abused by a woman, which does happen, then he should be allowed into this women's shelter for protection. It, it seriously blows my mind. Like, if somebody is being abused, then you help them. I don't understand why this is so controversial. Now, that, that should be obvious right there. I feel like that's something that even these jagoffs can get on board with. These right-wing extremist nutcases saying, you know, this whole trans trope about how they're predators and all that other stuff. I feel like maybe he feels that way, but he should at the very least be able to understand that men are abused sometimes too, and they should have a place to go sometimes too, if they need to. Like I said, my mom knew men in her battered women's shelter that were there because they were being abused. So the logical step here, or the logical jump that I'm going to try to get these right-wing extremists to make here is gender doesn't matter. If you're being abused, you should be allowed to get help for that. Bottom line. So it doesn't matter if you're a man. doesn't matter if you're a woman. doesn't matter if you're trans. You should be able to get help if you're being abused. I feel like everybody should be able to get on board with that. But like they said in the article, they're just trying to spread this whole trope about trans people being predators. And I think that they're going to ride that into the ground. It, I, I honestly cannot imagine a case in which there isn't some asshole out there trying to spread that trope around, that they're predators. Let me just read this bit here again. It says, He told HUD staff that directors of women's shelters were concerned about big hairy men claiming to be transgender women in order to gain admission. Obviously, that's a very real problem. I'm unclear about why that, that's an obvious problem. I have not seen any kind of evidence of that happening. In fact, if that does actually happen, it should be illegal. That should be against the law. And that person should be prosecuted for it. If there are actually predators out there who are doing something wrong, they should be held accountable for it. But there are... I, I, personally, I don't know of any cases of that happening. I have not heard of any cases of somebody going into a bathroom or, you know, going into a battered women's shelter or something specifically with the intent to gain access to do something nefarious. And, and that may exist. It's possible. It's possible that that case does exist. 
if it does, they should be prosecuted. But you shouldn't be punishing an entire demographic of people for something that one of them might do. That is absurd. If you like what I do and you want to make sure I can continue to do it, you can support me in a few ways. First, you can support me on Patreon. That's probably the best way. But if you want to get something back for your support, you can check out my Teespring. I'm trying to make a shirt design for every cult I've covered. I haven't gotten every one, but I'm working on it. So check it out and see if your cult is up there. Second, you can support me by checking out my game shop. I sell controller, cartridge, and game box stands for every system from the original Nintendo and Sega Game Gear to the Xbox One and Nintendo Switch. So give that a look too. And finally, if you want to support me in some way other than monetarily, you can check out my other YouTube channels. I have a retro game channel where I answer questions like, why does Shy Guy have a mask? And why are CRT TVs the best way to play retro games? I also have the podcast where I talk about stuff I don't feel I can say on a monetized channel. And finally, I have my main channel where I talk about cults. I wish I didn't have to worry about dancing around subjects carefully in the first place, but I chose to do this as a full-time job. So unfortunately, I rely on YouTube's AdSense and on the support of patrons to continue doing the work I do. Anyways, check me out in all those places if you haven't already. Thanks for listening, guys.